0: and welcome to the podcast you're having tea with alice this week's episode is with ash fontana and we recorded it in london before the pandemic so it's a bit of a time travel episode uh i didn't put it up at the time because there's this bit in the middle where i (laughs) talk about doing all the festivals and traveling around the world and the kind of traveling community that you get um and i thought at the time i shouldn't put it up because all of that stuff was uncertain and up in the air now it is not uncertain and up in the air it's definitely not happening or actually has not happened um and so it feels less melancholy to put it up Uh, and it's such an interesting conversation ash is such an interesting interlocutor you can find him online at ash fontana all one word on instagram and also i think on twitter but not on facebook and we discuss why uh, it's a really good chat. We talk about intellectual, honesty, community, ambition, competency, success, algorithms, how much to struggle and how not to get caught up in questioning big life choices. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. Thank you for sticking with me. Do tell your friends about this podcast if you enjoy it. Share it around. The more people listen, um, the more... <laughs> The more we can talk to each other about these things, I think. Um, Thank you again so much to my Patreon subscribers, as always. Patreon.com slash Alice Fraser uh, for a glamorous look at my behind-the-scenes life. <laughs> no, you get you get blogs and, and video content and various other things and various levels. And uh, you know how Patreon works. Or if you don't, I'm sure you can easily find out. I will put this up now and stop rambling. There are a few live gigs coming up in Sydney if you're in Sydney um, as things ease up and if things ease up pandemic wise and of course I try to do at least a couple of Instagram lives a week, usually 8.30pm Australian time, 11.30am UK time and that's on at alliterative A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E on Instagram and they stay up for 24 hours so you don't have to uh, tune in at the exact time. Thank you. You're listening to Tea with Alice, um, and I'll talk to you again next week. So, who are you, and what are you drinking?
1: (laughs) Uh, I'm Ash, and I'm drinking mint tea, as I do almost every day.
0: Every day? Every evening? Evening. Why do you drink mint tea in the evening?
1: Because it settles the stomach. Uh Uh-huh. And... It, even if it doesn't actually settle the stomach, I've convinced myself it settles the stomach. So, as a ritual, Mm-mm. it settles me.
0: It settles you. It settles your stomach. No, I think it does settle stomach. I had, um, I just I had a run of illness in December, January, mm-hmm. just this t- terrible flu that was going. I never get sick, and so mm-hmm. I did this like one stretch of when we were launching the last post. Mm. I came back from Australia and immediately started working. Well, no, yeah, yeah, I just stored it all up for that period where it was most important for me to be working really well. Yeah, Um, just and had to work through it. And Mm. uh, there was yeah about two weeks where I was taking these like peppermint tablets. Oh, uh, because I couldn't keep anything down unless I did. Okay. So clearly, mint in some way. In some way. It's a real thing.
1: So should I eat this tea bag?
0: You should eat the tea bag. Or should I compress it first? um, Taka tea, which I've taken you to in Double Bay in Sydney, you can eat the tea leaves there.
1: Well, i just eat them anyway, even if I'm not (laughs) given permission.
0: (laughs) Well, it's because it's such like high-quality gyokuro and it's like so unprocessed, Mm. the leaf, uh, that it's they have it with a sort of citrus soy sauce. Oh, with the leaf? Yeah, with the leaf. It's sort of like spinachy and delicate. Oh.
1: Really bad. I'm going to turn this into an appetizer yeah. idea. Yeah, mm. do that. I was telling you this morning about how when I cook things, I cook them once without recipe, completely improvised, and never again. <laughs> I'm inspired to do something once.
0: Have you ever had lafette, <clears throat> which is a Burmese dish? Or...
1: Yes, the Burmese tea salad thing. Yeah, how goes that? It's amazing.
0: It's ridiculous. Let's
1: try and, well, I might try and create an Italian inspired version of that. <laughs> To be continued.
0: To be continued. Uh, And what have you been wrestling with recently?
1: Hmm. I have been wrestling with um, how to not get uh, sucked into questioning like big life choices. Um in uh, a lot of people around me recently have been questioning big life choices. Um I've got reason to question my own life choices. You know, through a breakup, launching into a new era of my business and whatever else. But like I just feel really good about it and I don't think I need to question all that much. So I guess the broader thing I've been struggling with is like how much to struggle uh, with like your big decisions or just like be fine with them for a bit. That's a super meta one. Um, Something I constantly struggle with day to day is sort of what we were just talking about around intellectual honesty, but which is like, how much do we really know? Like just, you know, some of the standard primary epistemological questions and particularly in my work, I don't um, know much when I'm making decisions, but I'm paid to make decisions about things for which you can't know much. Um, (laughs) So uh, it's like, it's a very relative consideration. And the other thing I'm struggling with is technology. and like the role technology plays. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other thing I'm struggling with is like, what does it mean to just let, let yourself be happy. It's sort of the old, the old striving question in a way. Um, You know, I'm just a very, very intense person and, but I enjoy intensity, Mm. but like intensity is, is usually takes the form of striving. Um, And I've got a lot, a lot, a lot more to say. Um, How do, how evangelical to be about climate change Uh um, is something I'm struggling (laughs) with. Um, And then whether it's truly possible, to live between two cities Mm -hmm. but also maintain a really good sense of community because where I mostly live today in San Francisco, I don't think I have a super strong community Um, and where I might be splitting my time between San Francisco and London, um, a Places where I think I I think I could have twice the amount of community spending half the time in each place. <laughs> I, that's a theory I have. And I think it's like a really plausible theory, but it's completely counterintuitive.
0: Okay. I mean, that's, let's start there uh, and work years. our way backward through, through mm. that list because uh, this podcast can't go on forever and I'll just mm. have to have you back. Mm. Um, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on. I always have people on who mm. I think have interesting things to say. Mm-hmm. I basically spent my time between two mm-hmm. cities mm-hmm. or more
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, but mainly sort of Sydney slash Australia mm-hmm. and London and mm-hmm. um, but I have the privilege of doing that via the festival circuit mm-hmm. which means that a lot of my community travels with me there's sort of a traveling mm-hmm. circus element to it so Uh, my best friend in comedy, Laura Davis, is Mm -hmm. going to be in Melbourne with me. Mm -hmm. And she'll be in Sydney after that because I'll I'll be in Sydney then and then we'll be back in London together and then we'll be in Edinburgh together in August. So Ah. there will be...
1: The travelling community. Maybe Mm. three
0: or four weeks in the next six months where we won't have breakfast together or or tea together most days of the week, couple of days a week at least. and so And that'll be across... London, Melbourne, Sydney, mm. Edinburgh. Mm. And then, you know, occasionally we'll do a little run together, a little tour together, and I'm doing a tour in November and I'll probably get her to open mm. for me just because mm-hmm. you can sort of carry your community with you in that yeah. way. But then of course, withdrawing from the, the stage of your career. Yeah, well, not not quite. <laughs> I think maybe that's the next step. This Diving. is still the Mm. No, but I mean that's an interesting point. I think that's one of the reasons why people have entourage because, entourages because it's so isolating being on the road. Absolutely. Um, but, but then the question of whether to withdraw from the festivals, you know, mm. whether the festivals have given you everything that you went in for, if you can even remember what you went in for mm. in the first place. A lot of people do it to get a TV job. And then mm. if you've been doing it for five or six years you're not necessarily going to break. You know, you're, it's a sunk yeah. cost fallacy to a certain extent. Yeah. But by that point, I think people become quite addicted to the community, if nothing else, because mm-hmm. all your friends are there. And then that doesn't feel like a good enough business reason mm. to do something. Particularly, I'm lucky in that I'm quite conservative about the way that I invest in, in my festivals so I don't tend to lose money. But some people lose money every festival
1: yeah but like people have been doing this for a while Mm. like what came first work or community community or work what's the means to what ends the reason we form communities as human beings is so that we don't have to well so that we can survive by not doing an inhuman amount of work Mm. as in so that we can raise crops um that are, are sort of hedged against each other. Like, yeah. If it's just you and you're responsible for providing yourself with all of your calories, you're probably going to fail and die because mm. you get wiped out at some part of the year, you'll miss something, whatever. You won't um, have enough variety,
0: sick. you won't, yeah. yeah.
1: You'll get sick, there won't be like readily available peppermint capsules. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a real problem. Um, we'll have enough variety. And so we have the family unit and we have. The extension of the family unit, which is like all the people that work for Walmart and live in Bentonville, Arkansas, like they're a family, they're a community, and they're also they also all work together. And so, like, is it sort of wrong to make a work decision based on a community, which is not really the pointed question you were going at, but it's like quite related.
0: But it is, yeah, it is related. I think that's the the central question when it comes to I think what you said at the beginning Mm -hmm. uh, as one of your laundry list, which Mm -hmm. is people questioning their life decisions. Mm -hmm. I think we're now at a period or an age of our careers, Mm -hmm. um, or a lot of our friends are, or a lot of our colleagues Mm -hmm. are, you're established. Mm -hmm. You have achieved the thing that you spent all of school and all of university and all of your Mm -hmm. kind of apprenticeship in whatever career Mm -hmm. you were doing. And you've got to this point that you were striving for.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And it's hollow or it's not what you thought it would be or you feel dissatisfied and I think part of that is Mm -hmm. like training because Mm -hmm. we trained ourselves to pursue a goal Mm. it's an inherent human quality that we cultivate through you know the best thing for me in life was really realizing I didn't need someone above me to promote me Mm that I didn't need to graduate from something that I didn't need mm-hmm. that per because if if you if you do that then you are lost.
1: Yeah. Or it, always looking for something that you might you can't you can't be deterministic about really.
0: Well no one's giving you a trophy, no one's telling you that you've won, no one's telling yeah. you that you're allowed to take the next step up. Mm-hmm. And that can really cripple you. Mm-hmm. Unless you think you, know, you kind of have to it sounds hacky, but you have to define success for yourself.
1: You can't outsource it.
0: You can't outsource it. Or, yeah. I mean, you can, and many people do, but I feel like that is a, a shortcut. It's a point. To yeah. feeling, you know, as mm-hmm. many of our friends do at the moment, What, mm-hmm. what what's next? Mm-hmm. Why am I here? What am I doing here? Mm-hmm. And how have I made all these trade-offs to get this mm-hmm. thing? And what I really wanted was time with my family. Or
1: Yeah. Have we talked about the competency trap?
0: Uh. We may have, but I haven't seen you for more than a year, so that's true. So the competency
1: trap is this thing where you build competency, so you become very good at a thing. Mm -hmm. You become very good at um, the law or finance or comedy or painting or whatever, and you get like a bundle of a bunch of competency in something, and that allows, and you can trade that in for something. You can trade that in for money by earning more money by selling your services or your skills you can trade it in for relatedness you can meet a lot of people because you're a competent interesting person Um, or you can trade it in for intellectual curiosity like oh i'm pretty competent at this thing but the next level of competence requires me to learn some cool stuff and i'm going to learn more stuff anyway the point is if you assume that like they're the three things we need in life like relatedness to other people financial stability and um, intellectual sort of stimulation, you can trade competency in for all those three things. What a lot of people do is they build a competency in something and instead of trading it in for something they actually want, they double down on just building more competency. Mm -hmm. They're just trading on being more competent at a thing. And so to bring this down to like a practical example, like you become a really successful lawyer or you become really good at law and... Um, instead of going, huh, I'm going to trade that in for a higher paying job at, in, at a bank, working for still working really hard, but working at a bank and getting paid more to do bigger deals. Or instead of trading it in for a cushy in-house job where I get more time with my family, more relatedness, or an academic posting where I'm like way more intellectually stimulated than my boring current firm job. You just stay at your firm and get promoted to partner and just become more competent at being a partner at a law firm. Yeah. And people just keep doubling down on that. And you see this happen like across phases of people's lives too. So you're a really smart high school student instead of going, huh, I'm really smart. I could like go and just study philosophy for a couple of years or I could write a short story and like meet all these cool people or be an artist, or whatever. You just trade it in for a position in law school. And then you do really well at law school instead of going, I can trade this in for a super high paying job at a hedge fund. You trade it in for being a better lawyer by joining a law firm. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that's an interesting... It's a trap that people fall into. And um, I think just being conscious of the junctures in your life at which you can trade your competency in for something and trying to be conscious of what you're trading it for or... If at that point in time it makes sense to just, like, trade it in for being more competent in a thing because then you can, like, really buy the thing that you want. It's well, a I, good thing.
0: I feel like there's a, there's a sort of a double-ended uh, mm-hmm. problem at play there, which mm-hmm. is that, like, in order to be successful at school mm-hmm. or... You know, in your younger years, in order to be mm. successful as a child and as a teenager, okay. what you need to be able to do is recognize authority mm-hmm. and respect it to a certain degree mm-hmm. so that you have to believe in people who say that they have their best, inter- your best interests at heart and that mm-hmm. they know more than you mm-hmm. and you have to trust them enough to mm-hmm. guide you. And that's obviously complicated if they're not trustworthy. Mm -hmm. But assuming that you have access to relatively trustworthy adults, Mm. um, you need to go, okay, I believe you. I should study this thing. I should not go out and play. I Mm. should read this book instead. I should learn to read. I I remember having Mm -hmm. this argument with my dad, Mm. or I don't know, he's probably told me the story and I've internalised it, but I didn't like the alphabet. Mm. I refused to learn the alphabet Mm. um, when I was a kid. And I'd spoken very early and, you know, I was Mm. having a twin brother. You learn to talk quite early because you're talking to each other. Mm. And I refused to learn the alphabet. And the reason my dad sat me down and spoke to me about it, the reason was because I hated the song. Mm. The alphabet song is boring. It's the same song as Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. It's really Mm. repetitive and dull and I Mm. I loathed it. I found Mm. it really cringy and I didn't want to learn it. And so dad sat down and he said, well, you like it when we read books to you. And... You want to learn to read books yourself, and these are the building blocks that will teach you. Mm. So, that, you know, when you're young like that, and obviously until you're probably in your late teens, um, there are people who know more than you. And who, mm. and then there's a point at which that switches, where you know what is best for you, mm. where you know that your interests are not... Yeah. Your parents might love you, they might think they know what is good for you, but they don't anymore. Mm. Mm-hmm. And being able to recognize that transition point, I think yeah. is essential.
1: Yeah, this is a really good thing to point out because what I was assuming when I was explaining the competency trap is that you have a calculus for value yeah. of what you want and like the relative value of it to you given your position right now and your value of competency. And like there's a currency problem, like a, um, an exchange rate here and um, knowing what that exchange rate is and whether to do the trade for trading competency, for relatedness or whatever, assumes you have a calculus. Yeah. And so this is a really good thing to point out, which is like, when do you develop that calculus and how do you develop that calculus? Which is like, how do you know yourself well enough to know what you want and when you've got it?
0: Yeah, rather than just what you don't want. Mm -hmm. And for me, I was relatively lucky. I had had a good sense of what was not good for me, which was Mm -hmm. to say working in a large corporate law firm was... Mm -hmm ruining me as a person, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have survived um, in any meaningful way if I had mm. stayed there and potentially, mm. potentially, you know, there was some... Uh, w- when you're walking to work and you're thinking, I wouldn't be really upset if I got hit by a car on the way in, mm. like, that, that's not a great no headspace. Mm. Um, so I was lucky enough to have that quite strong sense and also at the same time to have a very... Um, very loose relationship to money mm. uh, at that point I'd already done enough different kinds of work that were paid either way too much for the amount of work they were or way mm. not enough for the amount of work mm. they were that oh, I didn't well. think of money as being attached to anything in a real sense yeah so I wasn't worried about what I would do hmm. you know I it, money wasn't the thing and and I had a friend at the law firm who needed to get a facial every month, otherwise mm. she didn't feel human. Yeah, and I didn't. I I'm lucky enough to not have not that. Those
1: things that cost money that you need.
0: The things that make me happy are not mm. things that cost a lot of money, mm. which is luck, really. Mm. That's you know combination of upbringing and natural you can tendencies.
1: Cultivate this stuff, but
0: yeah. But not everyone's lucky enough to be brought up in a Buddhist mm. family with a tomboy for a mother. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that helps. It, it, it does help mm. uh, with that stuff. Um, mm. Not to sort of blither on about myself, but certainly I think that made it easier to make that decision. Mm. And I think a lot of people come up right up against the border of despair before they can bring themselves to pull the plug. Mm. Or they go beyond it. Like there's mm. a reason that suicide rates in professional life are so high. Yeah. Because you don't know how to
1: stop exactly you're so numbed to the choices that are numb to the choices available to you because you're convinced by the people around you by some sort of narrative around the corporation that you work for by some sort of narrative around your industry or whatever that like this is the thing that you are you have to do
0: and to not do it is failure <clears throat> It's that not a different choice. Yeah, it's it's a failure to not want to do it. Exactly, and
1: and so the choice then becomes: do I fail or do I just exit?
0: Yeah, which I think is why I think it's important for people to fail a lot. Yeah, (laughs) to make you realise that that Hmm. what is that? That's nothing. Visualise
1: failure at least. Yeah, think through it. The Stoics sort of imagine the death. um, Imagine the death of something or some part of your life or someone and like really interrogate how you would think you would feel and of course you're going to be wrong in like predicting how you would feel in that situation with the mere act of thinking through it makes you um less scared of it
0: yeah what's the worst that could happen yeah. realistically what's the <laughs> worst that can happen because of course the yeah. worst that can happen is you know, anything terrible but mm. what realistically what's i mean my my sort of motto. I used to do merch with this on it. Was mm-hmm. no one's going to die? Mm. We're all going to die, mm. um, which is not true. If you're a doctor, that's not mm. <laughs> that's not a no, good not motto for a doctor. But for me, certainly.
1: Oh yeah, I um, often say that in the middle of things at work.
0: You know, we have this privilege. We're in a sort of mm. first world country. We have. Mm infinite lives in that setting in the forums of of business yeah we have you know you can go bankrupt Mm. and you can Mm. have that but then you can start Mm. again Mm um yeah particularly if you do have a strong community and Mm. something to fall back on in that way of just people whose couch you can crash on if it all goes to shit yeah you know or if you fail out of your relationship having having friends and and family there who will help you talk to There's so many people in miserable relationships because they're afraid of failing at a relationship. Yeah. Which I think is...
1: You can't do, really. I mean, you
0: can have a bad one, you can have a good one. I I feel you can fail yourself or you can fail the person you're with.
1: Yes, true.
0: But it's better to fail a relationship than it is Mm -hmm. to keep going for fear of failure.
1: It's better to fail the third body of the relationship or fail to deliver to that than to fail to deliver you to yourself or the other person yeah be kind to yourself be kind to the other person if the relationship's a casualty or well, that was a third like um sort of made up entity anyway
2: yeah
0: it's a, a structure that is built only by inward pressure from two sides yeah and it becomes inherently unstable if that pressure is unbalanced yeah and exactly but yeah it's a well, good points <laughs> all around. Do you yeah, think.
1: Around indeed.
0: Well, this was the thing that I was thinking. Do you think mm. that your attitude to um, your own happiness, your sort of skepticism, questioning of your own happiness, mm. your. Do you think that that is related to your job being to price uncertainty?
1: Huh. Um, I think uh, the job came after this tendency, mm-hmm. which is that um, I'm lucky enough to sort of be born happy, optimistic. I also like make it my job to be happy when I wake up in the morning. Like I view it as my job to show up for the world as like a fulfilled, happy person. And so I do things that make me happy and fulfill me. Mm -hmm. And I make time for those things. And so, um, therefore I'm more comfortable asking questions of my own happiness. Mm -hmm. I think if I was less happy, I wouldn't, Every time I'd ask myself, oh, am I happy? Why am I happy? All this sort of stuff. I have a complete <laughs> meltdown. Yeah. But I've just, I've got it to burn. So yeah. I'll burn it. Yeah. Um, anyway, how does that relate to my job and pricing uncertainty and whatever else? I think it just um, relates to the question of or the, uh, yeah, how do you build a person that is comfortable questioning and thinking through stuff and whatever else And you build that person in sort of some of the ways you mentioned, which is like you build that person by building a strong community around yourself, around the person. Most importantly, you build that person by being physically healthy. You build that person in all these different ways. Anyway, relating this back to my job, which we haven't even said what it is. It's investing and it's investing at a stage, a very early stage in a company's life where there's very little that is known about the prospects of that company Um, is that you have to question so much in the process of making a decision to invest in a company at that stage that, um, and you have to be willing to take on and throw out assumptions, take on and throw out analytical models, spend so much time on something only ultimately to find something out four months down the line that causes you to just throw out four months of work in an instant. You have to do that and have no sense of sorrow or ownership or, um, identity connected to the idea of investing in a particular company that you can just do that over and over and over and over and over again, not be demoralized. Um, and I think you can only do that if you're very, very happy in another realm in your life. Mm. Or a sociopath. (laughs) I'll put it more bluntly and like perhaps controversially, the investors I know that are bad Mm. are the investors that get their identity really wrapped up in their work or making particular investments or ideas or whatever else. Mm. And the investors I know that are really good, just are very cold about, you know, an idea don't feel like some big sense of ownership or, or something around like the idea of making an investment. They just, you know, day in, day out, assess stuff and, um, Keep working on it, or whatever else, and even if it doesn't work out, they just—they don't mind. They move on to the next thing.
0: Mm. I mean, that's an interesting thing to to applaud or to laud is the mm. idea of coldness, particularly in business. Mm. That's a thing that mm. I think. Well, obviously, I'm in the arts. I'm surrounded by anti-capitalists and mm. and and leftists of all all stripes, yeah. uh, genuine commies, you know. Yeah. And mm. so the it feels. Uh, Untrustworthy in some way for people to be able to mm. play with businesses and, mm. by proxy, lives without mm. emotion.
2: Mm.
0: And I think that's mm. a there's a, an interesting book. I think the uh, I can't even remember what it's called, but it's like the argument against mm. empathy. Yes. And and for yeah. compassion yeah. Yes. as an alternative to empathy. Yes. The idea that we have as a society become too invested in in feeling other people's feelings. Yes. Uh, in empathising rather than realistically and sort of in this slightly colder way yeah, trying to help them. Yeah. And
1: and there are a lot of downsides, this empathy thing. Like people have talked about empathy for the last 10, 15 years as like an objectively good thing to have or to cultivate. And there are a lot of downsides to being empathetic. Um, and the book is far more articulate than I will be about it. So it's, mm. it's about 10 years old. I think it was a Princeton Press book. Um, And I think it is called the argument against empathy, but I can't remember. Yeah.
0: Yeah, which is... Now, to be clear,
1: though, just sort of bringing back to the day-to-day of my job, and I just want to make sure this is um, clear, because otherwise it would seem... Use the word play with businesses or the phrase play with businesses. What I'm talking about is the point up until making an investment. And you have to be clear-headed, intellectually honest, and like dissociated from that decision so that you make really good decisions however the point after you make the investment or the period after you make the investment you completely flip the modalities which is you go native so to speak as in like okay i'm investing in the company now my job is to support the ceo and the management of this company my job is to be a good fiduciary on the board of this company if you take a board seat or whatever and like i'm on their team now and it becomes all about being associated with everything to do with that company Mm -hmm. you are native to that company Mm. and you you live and breathe and like that's your team and so the the modality flip that happens at the point of making the investment is i think really important to not only making that investment successful like being on the team um but also just being a good person and it's very funny because the point up until making the investment it's sort of like a little bit of a quasi adversarial process with the management because you're trying to interrogate them and figure things out and whatever but then once you make the investment you're like hey guys we're on the same team now (laughs) we have full trust between each other and you sort of need to build that trust really really quickly Mm -hmm. after making the investment but then you um
0: spend four um, months negging them
1: (laughs) yeah four months like you know really having a very strong debate um, and being very adversarial in a way because like being an adversary is a way to sort of is one technique for finding information um, that is relevant to reducing uncertainty and making a decision
0: yeah I sort of i'm I'm fascinated by the adversarial process as a way mm. of pushing discourse forward because mm. I feel like a it's blown out of all proportion and done yeah, very an, badly on
1: tool. on
0: the internet <laughs> yeah uh, and secondly people mistrust it in places where you are on their side. Mm. So a couple of weeks ago I did a podcast with Alison Spittle who is mm-hmm. a brilliant Irish comedian
2: mm-hmm.
0: and we were talking about uh we were talking about cancel culture and mm. she had been very pro cancel culture and had mm spoke with me about taking a step back from it and not thinking mm. it was a good way to achieve her mm. goals, mm-hmm. realising that it wasn't as effective as she had hoped it would be and it was trading in a sense of satisfaction mm. at having done something to for the kind of long-term work that is required to actually mm. change what you dislike rather than just attacking a person as a proxy for a group that you dislike or a set of behaviours that you dislike. Mm. Anyway, so we were talking about this in the way that, you know, I talk about things which are sort of turning ideas around. Mm. And I a couple of times I had to sort of reassure her or take the reins of the conversation. Yeah. And someone sent me an email noticing that I talked more in that than I would normally in a podcast mm. because she was uncomfortable and she had to reassure herself a couple of times. We weren't having a fight. We we're on mm. the same side.
1: Mm. Yeah, people do that. B-
0: because people... You have to... I feel like it's important, to, if you're on the same side, to Mm. have that, not adversarial, but certainly dialectic, a back and forth, a Mm. questioning, a probing, a testing of the ideas, Mm. because otherwise uh, the ideas are not going to have any... They won't develop. They won't develop. There's no hormetic process there. There's no damage and growth. You don't know that your argument is bad until someone knocks it with their knuckles.
1: Yeah.
0: And... And that's not...
1: And then you have to build it up again using the pieces and whatever else. Yeah,
0: I think that's an important, yeah. a very important thing. I think very, there are very few people in the whole of human history who've been able to think their way out of their own brain
1: mm-hmm.
0: without any <laughs> external yeah. input. Yes. You know, there's... Yeah.
1: It becomes a, it becomes a vacuum or an abyss.
0: Yeah. yeah. You, you think you've built a, you know, beautiful tower and you've got absolutely no uh, perspective on how this
1: phenomenal quotations about this from philosophers (laughs) and psychologists around like needing that needing something to rub up against yeah yeah
0: well i think when people travel to find themselves often they'll sort of their persona or their ego or their sense of self Mm. slumps into an amoebic Mm. mass of you know gelatinous non-direction yeah If, if you if you take yourself away from all of the things that surround you, that can be useful. But, yeah. you know, I mean, a lot of is, people have left themselves in Bali.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> it, and I think um, for a small percentage of the people that end up in Bali to pick, up, pick, up, pick on Bali, it is the thing that they need to rub up against. Yeah. Like, you know, for example, someone who is super rigid, um, eats burgers every day and... Um, lifts a lot of weights and never does any stretches like going to a a vegan yoga retreat in Bali is like going to be very abrasive for them Mm. and cause them to really break down a lot of their assumptions about how they move and eat and breathe. Um, But for someone who already does a lot of those things, just selecting that place because it's so similar is not really going to be an opportunity for their growth, I don't think. And I think this is like a, a very good principle, I guess, for those in you know, a very like pathetic attempt to sort of put some threads through some of the things we're saying <laughs> is a very good principle for those that are, do find themselves in that position where they're like a little bit dissatisfied with where they're at. They're a little bit empty. Um, I think like try to find the edges of where you are and find another little edge that could rub up against that. Um, and so, what I mean by that is try to find the 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 sort of the grooves you're in, the habits you have, the things that where you find yourself sort of um getting a bit stuck in your ways or doing things over and over again, and then just look for the opposite mm. um of that and we were talking about this the other day at breakfast about like the day to day like try to sort of get away from or um in your day to day like have something that's that's very different like i spend a lot of my time talking to people of a certain background with certain privileges, with certain ideas, with access to certain resources. And so it's very productive for me to like find opportunities to talk to people that aren't from those backgrounds or have access to those resources or whatever else to get different perspectives. Anyway, it's just a good principle for like, if you find yourself dissatisfied, like go and rub up against something. Like if you've got an itch, go and scratch it against something. Like, and if you, (laughs) if you're itchy, you don't scratch up against something soft you yeah. stretch up against something hard. Yeah. Like you think of animals. I'm just always thinking of these little ibexes. sheep. Um, what's the plural of ibex?
0: I- 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 Ibises. 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 <laughs> Ibises.
1: Yeah, I saw these beautiful little ibex creatures in the mountains on the weekend. Anyway, if you're an ibex and you're itchy, you don't rub up against like, the snow.
0: Yeah.
1: You rub up against a rock.
0: Yes. And this brings me to something that I've been sort of obsessing about recently, which is algorithms.
1: Mm.
0: That thing, and I've, I've made jokes about it in The Resistance, I've made uh, talked about it before, but it's something that I keep coming up against, which is if you only are offered things based on things that you already like, mm. well, that... You know, there's no uh, one who told you before you ate an olive that you yeah. would like it. There's nothing you could have had before you had an olive exactly. if, that would have told you that you'd like an olive. Yeah. Would you like something with sort of pickled rubber bands? Like, yeah. But you like olives. You know, there's, yeah. it's, it's not good to only eat sweets, even if you like sweets. There's yeah. so many different examples. There's just sort of a plethora of examples. Mm. And yet this economy of attention... Oh, yeah. Is is cultivating the algorithms that they're building to maintain this economy of attention, to feed into the economy of attention, to addict us to these processes Mm -hmm. are only feeding us.
1: A self-reinforcing.
0: Yeah. We're the species that invented Russian roulette. We should take some chances.
1: Exactly. Oh, you've triggered a, a nice little rant here. And it is related to something that was on the laundry list, which is struggling with technology. Yeah. And so for those who are listening... Um, my job is to in- invest in intelligent systems, so machine learning systems, artificial intelligence, so people call it the robots. Um, the robots, yeah. <laughs> um, not traffic lights. I think we figured that one out. I don't <laughs> think we're going to have build a technical <laughs> advantage by investing in traffic lights. Um, but the um, that's what I do for a living, and I do that in the industrial and commercial context.
2: Mm.
1: In my personal life, I reject almost every single form of machine learning. I have never had a Spotify account and I don't use it. I have not had a Facebook account for many, many years. When I use Twitter, I use a client that doesn't have the algorithmic newsfeed and it It has a chronological newsfeed. I don't use any of these recommendation systems in my personal life. I don't have a Netflix account. I never have. I don't accept any of these things. I have an Amazon account. That's the only thing, but like you know, I try not to buy the crap that it tells me to buy. I try to go on there, buy my thing and leave. Um, and the reason is...
0: Randomly select because... crap to keep it on its toes. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. Randomly click on like really out there ads um, to get to mess up with the retargeting. So I, while I spend my whole life finding commercial industrial applications of intelligent systems, um, my whole professional life, my personal life, I spend largely like actively rejecting them. Yeah. And it's because developing taste is fun. Firstly, like I like going through the discography of an artist and understanding their influences, and then listening to the people that influence them, and seeing how it all fits together, or whatever. In the case of music, that's fun. But two, um, you tend to lead a richer, more satisfying life if you occasionally just like rub up against something unexpected or introduce like a little random variable in there. Like I didn't know I would like this sweet and sour rhubarb toothpaste that I bought, (laughs) but I bought it because it's like, that's weird. (laughs) That's super weird. I've never seen it. It's sitting in front of us right here. Um, and it's amazing. Yeah. And like that's, that's people's lives now are very, um, stuck and like you know the news is obviously a good example like i don't use any news feeds so to speak um i try to seek out information and like go deep on a thing in my own self-directed research path because that makes me a more interesting person to talk to that makes me a more informed citizen about a smaller number of things
0: yeah i think it's in part it's a response to choice paralysis Mm -hmm. that people have we are living in a world now where people of any wealth and, you know, mm. a lot of us are now living in middle-class existences or certainly consumer goods are so much cheaper than it used to be. Hundreds. It used to be, you know, a plane flight would cost a year's salary. Yeah. A year.
1: Unbelievable. Your whole
0: year's salary. Yeah. And nowadays people will go to... It's a month. Italy for the weekend.
2: Yeah.
0: For £50 pounds yeah. or, you know, it's a different game. You could... You don't have to um, build a table out of bricks and a plank. You can mm. go to IKEA and mm. buy a cheap table. Mm. So the options available to people become deeper through society, mm. all the way down uh, mm. to the people who can't afford very much at all, mm. still have more choices mm. than most people throughout history, yeah. including kings, would ever this have is had.
1: The, the Louis the Fourteenth thing, have I sort of said this to you, like no. Louis the Fourteenth could summon. Any cuisine he wanted, clothes made out of whatever he wanted, entertainment, just from jesters to the pornographic to whatever. Um, but he was the only person in the whole kingdom that could do that. No one else had that freedom. Yeah.
0: And even then, it would be cold. Now, I can
1: like, use DoorDash, you know, some uh, entertainment website, uh, Amazon, or whatever, to do all of those things. And I don't need any money to summon any of those things. I could probably do all of those things for less than 50 bucks. Yeah. Like buy a t shirt, buy something nice to eat, watch a movie well whatever, and the, 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 space the of 30 minutes
0: the sort of uh, fragmentation of the time of the serving class if you're thinking about things in a, yeah. a feudal sense everyone can have a bit of a servant yeah you don't need to have a full time yeah, driver you, have a full-time one. you know you don't need to have markets a
1: markets are a wonderful thing
0: <laughs> it's it's a
1: specialization and
0: again obviously this trade. is like from a position of of being in the first world and a massive a massive yeah. privilege but It's something that more and more people are having to contend with Mm. and I think a lot of people don't want to think about
1: it Mm.
0: it's hard to think about it It takes up time
1: but it's genuinely hard to think about it
0: what 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 might I like I don't know what I might like of all the possible things in the world so you ask a friend and because we don't have friends anymore you ask a robot (laughs) yeah what do you think I'd like?
1: Yeah, what should I, what should I, what should I buy right now? Yeah, but you just and it serves you a thing to buy, and you click on it, and you're dissatisfied, and then maybe it, next time it just serves you more of the thing yeah. that you clicked on last time.
0: Well, and, and then, then, then you, you s- get
1: stuck in a little loop, and you've watched a bunch of, you know, a hundred really weird things on YouTube. Later, you've got a serious illness.
0: Yeah, but this, <laughs> I mean, this is the thing of of. If I had had a phone or these kind of algorithms mm. when I was 12 mm. and my preferences at that time and my mm. interests at that time had guided mm. my interests now, had guided what I was offered, mm. I would be a very different person now. Yeah. I,
1: I, but you know what? It wasn't, it wasn't easy for you to make those choices about what you liked, right? Like you often told me at high school you would spend lunchtime in the library reading. Yes. And, you know, if you're doing that, you finish your book and yes. you've still got 30 minutes of lunchtime left and you don't want to go outside and say, so like, oh, I've got to pick another book. Yeah. That's sort of hard. It's like wandering around the library. Oh, what do I really want to do? Do I want to go outside? I don't know. It's hard to, like, figure out what you want to do next.
0: Well, here's a tip for you. Always judge a book by its cover.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> that looks like an interesting binding. I'm going to give that yeah, one why not? a shot.
1: Uh, works for wine.
0: Uh, but that, that was the, you know, I think people bemoan it now and it's kind of a hacky boomer thing to mm. say. But I, my mum was doing her master's when I mm. was small. Mm. And I remember going, hanging out with her while she was studying and my brother and I would have been four, mm-hmm. maybe five. So it was sort of the... The bottom two shelves of the library, yeah, and we would go through at that age and find things that had pictures,
2: yeah,
0: you know that and that process of finding the thing of all the options, you know, thousands and thousands of books in Fisher Library at Sydney University, you'd find you'd you'd open one and that wasn't for you and you'd open the next one and it had pictures and it might be pictures of frogs or it might be pictures of fairies or it might be, you know, that process was so interesting and part of the fun of it was getting it wrong. Yeah. And part of what made it satisfying when you found the right thing was having got it wrong for the last 10 books. Yeah. They were all, you know, Russian folklore or something and then yeah. you found like a and Then you
1: found a book about plants.
0: Yeah, or Ru- Russian fairy t- tales yeah. and then all of a sudden that was great. Yeah. So great Russian fairy tales. Russian fairy tales are Amazing. They're
1: another level. They're
0: completely... Yeah. The, the The mythology, the reference points, the structure...
1: Totally different.
0: ...is completely different. Yeah. There was one that I read... It was in a book of Russian fairy tales that I remember so strongly because the story was... Uh, I go to Baba Yaga's house, you know, it's the chicken legs Mm -hmm. at the edge of the forest and he makes it turn around and he goes in and there's a feast laid out Mm -hmm. and there are pearls in the pie Mm -hmm. and um, the forks and spoons are silver and the wine is in crystal goblets. Mm -hmm. But every time he goes to drink, the wine runs down his moustache and every time he goes to take a bite, the Mm -hmm. food falls off his fork. Mm -hmm. So he was really hungry and really thirsty. Mm -hmm. But on his way out he grabs a fistful of salt from the salt cellar and crams it into his mouth. So I got my money's worth.
1: Hmm.
0: That's the... So it's told first... So I got my money's worth. It's told first person, and that's the punchline of the story?
1: <laughs> Punchlines across
0: cultures are so funny. <laughs> Just, or, or the ending, or the moral, or... sort yeah. of as, And I, as a child, already kind of enculturated to, you know, Western fairy tales... Yeah. I was what I, mean, I think it's a what lesson is about that? spite <laughs> yeah
1: yeah it's a lesson about spite it's like i've had a bad experience oh i don't know this is gonna be sort of sound boring or silly but i've had a have had a bad experience and i'm gonna make it better by actually having a, a worse experience which yeah. is eating fistful of salt <laughs>
0: because salt is valuable yeah well I
1: mean, instead he should have like asked someone oh what am i doing wrong here <laughs> But that would have dented his ego. Yeah. Rather, he can just get a fistful of salt and I mean, feel, feel also, strong and in control.
0: Also, never eat something at Baba Yaga's house. It's probably a bad idea. Yeah,
1: it doesn't sound good. I wouldn't go into that restaurant. No, yeah, it's it's on, it's on chicken big, legs.
0: It's unhygienic.
1: Yeah, PR problem.
0: <laughs> it's definitely not vegan, Baba Yaga's house. No, definitely not. It's a uh... not into it. <laughs>
1: it's
0: a uh... anyway. What are we talking about?
1: We're talking about Russian fairy tales.
0: Russian fairy tales. The power of propinquity. Um, yes. My, I used to have an English lecturer who would say, beware the power of propinquity. He said he would mm. always read your footnotes and he could tell if you were only citing books that had been cited by the other books. Oh, the
1: Matthew effect.
0: Uh, yes, yeah, so that like you'd this. read round in a circle and he yeah. could tell whether your essay was going to be good by whether you'd only gone round this small little loop. that's
1: a good way to shortcut the circle.
0: Yeah, of of footnotes that referred to themselves, and so that implied lazy research.
1: But this is, again, like in a pathetic attempt to um, thread a needle between the last (laughs) seven and a half minutes... Um, this is the Matthew effect and this is what's happening with all these machine-learned systems, right? Yeah. So the Matthew effect... I mean, that
0: was the line the I book, was threading. <laughs> yeah, the
1: book of Matthew, <laughs> The book of Matthew in the Bible, like the rich get richer. There was an amazing study, I think it was in the was either late 50s, early 60s, and was a sociologist and do you know about this? Mm. He did exactly this, which is he looked at all the papers that were getting cited in, soci, in the field of sociology and he graphed them out. And it turns out it follows like a power law distribution. And for those who are trying to visualize what that is, it looks like sort of an exponential curve. Um, so, it, you know, um, 80% of the papers would, ci- would cite 20% of the other papers, as in the same papers will keep getting cited over and over again. And then he did this, he had a temporal aspect to this, which is like, he looked at papers over 10 years or 20 years or something like that. And it increased over time. So the rich got richer, as in, the papers that were cited more over time got cited more and more and more and more and more. Mm. Anyway, this has since been repeated in other fields. And basically, like, what people do, you can think of it, like, very um, instrumentally, they read a paper, they're like, oh, this is citing this other paper. I don't really have time to read that, but they cited it, so maybe I should cite it too, and so on Mm -hmm. and so forth. And this is exactly how a machine learning system works. Mm. It's like, it gets positive feedback, and so it just keeps spitting that recommendation out again. And because it keeps spitting that recommendation out again, then people keep clicking on it because it's the only recommendation they're given. Yeah. Not because it's good.
0: And then you factor in the presence of other bots yeah. that, that might be following might be these paths and reinforcing that, that these paths. There are pathways. also machine learning
1: bots. Yeah. So then they increase their feedback loop's velocity at an increasing rate. And you just don't want to get stuck in this.
0: No, it's very hard to break out of as well once yeah. once you've begun because... Again, if you are sort of cultivating ease in mm. your, in your, mm-hmm. you know, habits in your mind, mm-hmm. then you don't necessarily have the strength to break out of those habits. No.
1: And bringing this back to something else we were talking about, um, the concept of a debate or adversaries, one of the biggest innovations in machine learning over the last couple of years has been this thing called a generative adversarial network, which basically is a a main model, and then a model that discriminates. It's like basically creating a debate between models.
0: Between two robots. Between
1: two robots. And So
0: it's rock'em sock'em, but high-tech.
1: Super high-tech. <laughs> um, and it has been such an incredible innovation, and it's been really the innovation that has allowed um, machine learning to go from being a tool you can use to make predictions to being a tool that you can use to, cre- to make creations, to create art, to mm. create language, to create new things. And it is such an amazing sort of insight that, like, you need to have an adversary to develop beyond where you are.
2: Mm.
1: And um, that goes through everything you were saying about, like debating having an adversary and everything I was saying about an Ibex rubbing up against a rock.
0: Yeah, and it comes down to evolution. Mm. And I think that's a good analogy because it also points to the problem yeah. at the core of the adversarial system mm. that you see being blown out and distorted in Twitter arguments where everyone's just mm. calling each other Nazis, mm-hmm. which is that in an adversarial system like evolution, yeah. where you're fighting against things that mm. are trying to kill you or whatever mm-hmm. it happens to be, um, it's not always the best trait that is selected for mm. on a kind of a moral sense. Mm. Like maybe there were some really artistic peacocks no. yes. that were doing really subtle things in yeah. pastels that, that were inherently more beautiful. Yeah. But, but it's the strongest, the flashiest, the the most yeah. muscular idea that yeah. wins. Yeah. Which is not to say that's the best idea or the thing that yeah. we should be selecting it's for cool or, or the thing it. that we, yeah. you know, the thing that we want. The thing that wins on Twitter is screaming. Mm-hmm but we don't want to be cultivating screaming.
1: No. So exactly. we have to figure
0: out how to balance Yeah, that. people
1: always try to get their way out of arguments by saying, well, evolution.
0: Yeah.
1: But what people don't get about evolution is exactly what you just said. Like, evolution doesn't select for the best thing. It selects for the thing that survives in that moment or in that epoch. Mm. And um, it's funny, there's a coronavirus mask right there on the table here. <laughs> And my friend kind of gifted to me because he cares about me apparently. It's like it's like the, the 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 most romantic gift you can give these days is here's my precious coronavirus mask. That virus, as far as I know, which is not much about it, is not um killing, unfortunately, it's not killing the people that are um that like are good or bad or whatever. Like the people carrying it the strongest and not the people being killed by it. The people being killed by it are the people that, like, actually can't carry it on. And it's this very, like, aggressive anti-evolution in a way. You know, that's a complete sidebar. But, no, but, the point is a lot of people's conception of evolution is, like, a little bit off and they just view it as, like, always selecting for the good thing.
0: Yes, it's, it's trial it by combat. Yeah. You, you know, the, the proof that if you win the fight, God is on your side. Yeah that's there's nothing. nothing
1: morally right about evolution
0: no there's no there absolutely isn't and in fact there are things that you could argue are morally wrong about evolution right you know there you know the ways in which i mean i'm not going to get well, into that stuff yes there are, but there are traits that we have selected for that are not yeah. optimal for certainly for modern civilization no. and certainly not optimal in any kind of moral system Yeah.
1: if we knew what sort of world we would live in today is in like We would have lights and water running out of a tap and an abundance of calories and whatever else. We would not have chosen a lot of the traits we have. Yes. Like having the pancreas we have. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And therefore getting diabetes because we have all these calories around. Or we would not have chosen to like actually be that capable of like walking around in the way we walk because... We don't actually walk around a lot. We sit a lot. We probably we wouldn't have selected back.
0: for quite as much testosterone in men.
1: <laughs> ah, that's another <laughs> conversation. That's yeah. another conversation. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a trouble with testosterone just like there's a trouble with evolution and sudden standing. But the point is, if you're bringing it back to what I deal with every day and like a lot of the design choices people face in their jobs and in their personal lives every day... Mm. Picking the time horizon and understanding where you want to be at the end of that time is so important because you can des- pretty much design to where- for where you want to be. Whereas if you just leave it up to evolution, because like evolution's good, you probably won't end up where you want to be. Right?
0: Are you making an argument for eugenics, Ash?
1: <laughs> no, I'm making an argument for... <laughs> Being more conscious of the choices we're making no, I, and what, I, time horizon, you know, making, what time horizon we're making. The you know,
0: what... I think that if you allow yourself to be guided by reactive responses, mm. um, that will almost inevitably lead mm. you, uh, metaphorically, downhill. Mm. Because downhill is the easiest way to go when you're being bumped. Mm. You sort of need to set your sights on something.
1: Yeah.
0: How you want to be and whether what you're doing is the kind of person you want to be. Yeah. Uh, and do that in quite a conscious way.
1: Yeah. And this goes back to like why people are unhappy with where they're at in their career at age, whatever, 35, is because they thought of their career on a 10-year horizon. They're like, all right. And if you do think of your career on a 10-year horizon, you're like, I've got to be a partner at a firm in 10 years, well, yeah, you run like crazy to do that. But if you think of your career as a 50-year thing, you don't think of it as just serving the goal of being a partner at a firm. You think of it as serving the goal of supporting your family, allowing you to have interests and be healthy into your old age. And you think of it as like serving different purposes. And so you will optimize for different things and you will design your career to achieve different goals. Yeah. And... Um, I think that's why a lot of people end up being pretty unhappy 10 years in because they were designing for something that, you know, made sense on the 10-year horizon, but in year 11 you find yourself with a bad back, overweight, and without any friends.
0: Yes, and that kind of becomes more complicated or there's certainly another potentially toxic branch of that, which Mm. is women who have... Not thought about children, Yeah, one way or the other. They've either had them because that was the next step, the Mm. thing to do, and Mm. now they are dealing with that, or Mm. they've put that aside because of the 10-year horizon. They haven't thought about what it will be like to be Mm. a grandmother, Mm -hmm. but a very old, you know, all of those things of, of... uh, but we do not have time to talk about that. I have taken okay. up a lot of your time already. Well, Where go. can people find you online? I will definitely have you back, obviously.
1: <laughs> wow. There's so many open threads. It's yep. like we've just like destroyed all telomeres of, of ideas. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, this, is, this is not a conversation for closing off threads. This is a conversation for opening things up.
1: Opening threads, and I hope people take them into lots of places in their dreams. Uh, Ash Fontana. A s h f o n t a n a, on all of the um, places that you find people on the internet.
0: Except Facebook.
1: Such as except Facebook, such as Twitter and email. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Uh, thank you so much for having tea with me. You're welcome. This was great.
1: Thank you.
2: Do you know her, or do you not, this dolphin mistress that we have got? Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps adopters at every frame. Loudy all doll, a right rightful day. On Monday morning when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you doffers, cry up your ends, loudly rifle, for all, loudly right for day. And when the boss, he looks round the door, tie your ends up, doppers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally Rifle all day, lally right all day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow, or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Loudy rifle, all. I'll right rifle day.